Hello, I'm Sean Baker, Festival and Creative Director for Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival, and this is the Readers and Writers Podcast. We met so many amazing authors and storytellers at this year's festival, including the delightful Lynn Yowett, who joined us on Sunday morning to talk about her debut novel, The Silent Listener, which is an unforgettable literary suspense novel set in the dark and gothic heart of rural Australia, and it's a real cracker. Lynn was interviewed at the festival by our own crime queen, Jen Bowden, and the pair hit it off so much we had to get them back together for this very special festival follow-up. Hello and welcome to the Margaret River Readers and Writers podcast. My name is Jen Bowden and I'll be your host for this episode. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We thank them for allowing us to live and work on this beautiful land and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. So I'm a journalist, an editor and a writer living in Perth, Western Australia. I currently teach publishing and journalism at Current University, and I write long and short fiction that nobody really reads yet, I don't think. Um, I'm chatting with Lynn Yort today, author of the gripping new crime thriller, The Silent Listener. So before I introduce Lynn, I'd like to note that as part of this conversation, we will be talking about topics some people might find triggering or distressing, including domestic violence, violence in general, and emotional trauma. Lynn is a professional writer and editor with more than 25 years experience in writing and editing. She's done everything from captions for artworks to speeches for executives. The Silent Listener is her debut novel, and as we'll come to know, is loosely based on events from her childhood growing up in rural Victoria. She now lives in Melbourne, and we're very excited to have her here today online, of course, given that everyone is still locked down in Melbourne. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks, Jen. It's really great to be here today and um, reliving a little of the magic of this year's Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you who who weren't there, Lynn and I actually chatted at the festival this year. Um, So we will try and mix the discussion up a little bit, just in case you were there and, and want to learn a bit more about her book. So to get started, Lynn, can you tell us a bit about The Silent Listener? It's probably better coming from you so I don't give away any spoilers. That's a good idea. Um, The Silent Listener is a psychological thriller about, I'm going to say, three suspicious deaths that occur in different decades and all revolve around one family who are sort of trapped in a web of secrets and lies. And then what happens when the two daughters return home as adults to care for their dying father and decide to exact revenge. And it's a really, really gripping book. Um, I really enjoyed it. I raced through it despite the fact that it's it's over 400 pages long, uh, which seems quite lengthy for a crime novel, but it's so fast paced, you don't even notice that you're getting through it. Um, so your book has been likened to Delia Owens's Where the Crawdads Sing and Jane Harper's The Dry, both of which uh, both of which are pretty huge compliments. What do you make of those comparisons? Um, yeah, first off, I am actually really pleased <laughs> to have comparisons with books that have, you know, top several bestseller lists is, yeah, as I said, a real compliment. So um, I'm happy to take that on board. <laughs> um, but I can see some similarities with both books in terms of things like place and family circumstances and then, of course, the, the crime element, of course. Um, right down, I guess, to in both of those books, there's an unsolved crime, sort of a historical crime. Um, I've got that too. And then things like 
um, like in the dry, the extreme weather conditions or the extreme conditions of um, where the young girl is living. And then, yeah, in um, Crawdads, of course, is a young girl who's struggling against circumstances that are not really her doing, just as Joy is the protagonist in The Silent Listener. So, um, as I said, very happy to take the compliment and I'm hoping that readers enjoy my novel just as much as so many of them enjoyed reading those bestsellers. <laughs> and certainly in both of those books as well, there's a link between um, a young girl or um, young young children being caught up in murders uh, and that element of, of murders happening in the past that are, are having knock-on effects to things in the present. Yeah, uh, that was something that I was very keen to do because the story is across three different decades, essentially the 1940s and the 1960s and then the 1980s, and I really liked and did really try to link events from each decade, um, ultimately link them all together so that readers could get this sense of, I guess, tension and um, tension building throughout the novel and also this idea that what happens in the past does affect the present and can affect the future. Um, and that was actually quite fun to um, put all the pieces together so that that worked, hopefully worked. Yeah, it absolutely worked. Um, I wanted to ask, where did the title come from? How did you decide on The Silent Listener? Um, when I was a child growing up on the farm, um, we had a wall hanging in our kitchen and it's in the kitchen in the novel as well. And it read, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. And that is so ingrained in my head. And look, I think it was supposed to be comforting for us, but honestly, I always found it quite sinister. And now as an adult who loves literature, it, I actually find it quite Orwellian that there was this being who saw everything that you did and listened to everything that you said and, you know, quite um, sort of haunting in a sense and not in a good sense. Um, so I actually went through quite a few titles before I came up with that one and I actually love that lots of readers have commented on it and said that they can see that there are actually lots of silent listeners in the book it's not just Christ and although it certainly is um, for a period of time for Joy who really believes that Christ is there in the room um, but yeah so as I said I went through a few different titles but once I landed on that one I was I, I knew that would be it and I was quite pleased that Penguin didn't change it <laughs> so it's good. Yeah, it certainly it fits the, the story really, really well. And certainly some of the things that the characters go through, um, you really get that sense of that omnipotent presence um, being being quite, a, like you said, a haunting thing rather than a comforting thing. Um, until you reach that point in the book where you talk about the wall hanging, I was thinking, oh, well, this yeah, this title fits really well. It makes sense. And then I had that sort of aha moment when you see exactly what it means. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And, yeah, I think, yeah, without giving too much away, if people who haven't read the book yet, but there are several people and, and under several different circumstances and for different reasons are silent listeners or, or remain silent um, 
to things that are happening around them when you know, maybe they should speak up, whether they're main protagonists in the book or, or others on the periphery, which is um, just as important, in fact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we'll get onto that probably a little bit later on. Um, you mentioned the wall hanging actually being in your kitchen as a child. So the book is based on aspects of your childhood. Um, without revealing too many spoilers, do you think you could tell us which bits have a basis in reality? Mm, yeah. Um, so the easy and probably short answer to that is that um, in the novel, I describe a farm and a house and it is the farm and the house that I grew up in. So um, the paddocks, the sheds, the dam with the water lilies and the eels that are quite significant to the story, the tank that we burnt rubbish in, which is also significant in the story. Um, my mother did grow flowers and was a florist and had an extraordinary garden around the house and, and spreading a long way out from the house, which was absolutely beautiful quite in contrast to some of the other things that were going on in the house. And then there's the wall hanging itself. So physic the physical description that's in the book is pretty much a very accurate description of that house and farm. But the harder and probably more important answer is that the family dynamics were pretty much as they're described in the novel as well. So my father was extremely religious and essentially ruled our family with fear and um, from time to time with violence that was sometimes extreme and um, certainly I always felt quite hypocritical in terms of the religion um, that he espoused which was um, wasn't a cult or anything like that it was just mainstream Presbyterian uh, religion but for some reason he became obsessed with certain parts of it and certainly obsessed with the fact that he believed and actually told us that he would be the only unhappy person in heaven because his children would be in hell. So we kind of grew up with that fairly disturbing set of principles, I guess. And then, yeah, as I said, he ruled everything with fear. So it was a pretty difficult childhood in some respects. Mm. Yeah, I can well imagine. And and how did you manage writing a book that you have such a personal connection to? Were there things that you did to keep yourself safe while you were writing it? Um, yeah, I think the first thing is that I, I couldn't have written that book until my father died. And I did start to, at some point, write it but while my father was alive, but I really struggled doing that and so I abandoned it. Um, so I guess by the time I did get around to doing it, I had maybe what you might even call sort of the luxury of distance that um, in some respects, it seems that some of those things happened to someone else, not me. And because it's so far away in terms of time and also in terms of who I am now and, and what I do and so how I live my life. Um, but interestingly, when I did get around to writing it, I found that some of what might might have been the most difficult scenes to read or write were actually the easiest for me. So it really did seem that once I got going that there was something inside of me that had been kind of held down or suppressed or hidden or I'm sure psychologists have a whole range of terms for this sort of thing. 
but it suddenly kind of exploded out of me. Um, we talk about having a belly of fire and I really think that I kind of did. And so when I was writing those scenes, it was actually fast and furious and um, and it wasn't that difficult and it felt kind of good. In fact, in some ways it was really satisfying. Um, and I think, you know, and I've talked about this with other writers that, you know, drawing on your life can be both difficult and easy for all sorts of reasons. Um, and uh, I remember I, we talked about this in the um, uh, at Margaret River, Jen, that I remember seeing a cartoon of a woman who was signing copies of her book called My Miserable Life, and her mother was leaning over the desk where she was signing them in the bookshop saying, look, we're sorry, if we'd known you were going to be a writer, we'd have been a lot nicer to you. <laughs> And I think, you know, lots of, lots of writers draw on the unhappy aspects of their life um, and, and hopefully happy ones too. But sometimes I think we're drawn to those things, maybe to work them out in our heads, work out who we are and why we are and all of those kind of things. So it, in some respects it was difficult, but in, in actual fact a lot of it was easy and, as I said, very satisfying. It can be quite cathartic. I remember when I um, when I got out of my abusive relationship, I, I tried to start writing a novel about it and I found that I could put down the facts, but I couldn't really, you know, put it in any co kind of coherent narrative. And that's because emotional abuse and physical abuse, it doesn't take any kind of coherent narrative. You know, you, you kind of almost have to go with the flow of being disjointed in your own head in order to be able to, to get everything out. So I just chucked everything down and I felt so much lighter once it was all out. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it too. And um, mm, I think that we we have to accept however people want to write about those sorts of things. So whether it's just something you write for yourself or whether you do you know, what I've done and put it out there in a form of fiction, and there is a lot of fiction in the novel, or then you can look at what you know people like Jess Hill have done and you write about it in non-fiction way, or even you know some of Helen Garner's books where she takes other people's horrendous um, acts that are high profile and, and absolutely terrible, and she presents them in a sort of um, narrative format that's telling the truth. And I think that all of those forms of writing are valid in lots of ways. And if they're cathartic for the readers, absolutely fantastic and I've actually been approached by a few people in, through various formats who've said that reading my book has helped them deal with issues from their own life too and that's been really amazing and incredibly gratifying. Yeah absolutely I mean I, I felt that way after I'd read Jess Hill's book uh, mm. See What You Made Me Do and a lot of people asked me why I'd read it so like, isn't it really triggering for you? And I said, well, yes, it was, but it also explained an awful lot. Yeah. You know, sometimes reading something that has um, from someone who's had similar experiences or that can kind of get right to the heart of the issue you've been dealing with, it uh, really, really helps you process it. Yeah. And I think for people who haven't gone through that sort of trauma, I think it gives them a lot of insight into you know, a life or parts of a life that they haven't lived. And one of my um, readers who was in a book club that I went to, she said um, that she 
had known this man for quite some time whose son had run away. And this man, she said, was absolutely lovely. She had a great deal of admiration and respect for him. And she had always thought that it was the son who was the, you know, the baddie in the, um, mm-hmm. was in the family. And then she said, I, she said, I read your book and I suddenly realised that maybe I had the wrong end of the stick, that maybe there were reasons why the son ran away. And she said, you know, we're very quick to judge people's behaviours and maybe sometimes we just don't know the truth. And reading books like Jess Hill's and, um, and other ones, I think, can open up a world to people that they're otherwise unaware of. And certainly yours as well deals with that issue of the um, the perpetrator not necessarily being who the community thinks he is. So I want to talk about George just briefly. I don't want to give him too much time because um, he's not a nice character. He doesn't deserve no. it. Um, so I want to talk about him in the context of uh, domestic and family violence situations. So we usually focus on the victim rather than the perpetrator. We ask um, why the victim suffered violence without really asking why someone was violent towards them. Mm. Um, George has all of the hallmarks of an abuser. He's a coward. He has this overwhelming sense of shame that means he needs to diminish others to feel better about himself. He needs to wield his power in order to feel in control. But he's also delusional uh, in your book. So he, he has that diagnosable uh, mental health condition. Do you think that by giving him that particular condition it excuses his behavior or justifies it in a in a, any way um look i think that we all like to know why people behave the way they do and in early drafts of the novel i didn't explain or or, or hint at why george was the way that he was and i think that's because we never really understood why our father was the way that he was particularly when his siblings were not, and, and I had known his father and he had been, um, you know, my grandfather, a really very kind and gentle person. Um, so I was kind of happy to go with not knowing why George did that because sometimes I don't think we do, but um, early readers and my publisher said they wanted to know why George was the way that he was. So I've given him yeah, a mental illness and I think that helps us rationalise their behaviour, but I don't think it justifies or excuses the behaviour. And, in fact, um, the cop, Shepherd in the novel, actually says at some point, I think towards the end, that there are plenty of people who have the same sort of mental health condition as George who don't go around doing what George did, that there were other things at play. And, of course, we don't necessarily know what they are or why some people behave the way they do given their backgrounds and so on. And I am actually quite interested in the cause and effect relationship between, I'm going to say, conditions of the brain and criminality or doing horrible deeds and even sort of what we should, what we can or should think of people who have mental health conditions or neurological conditions maybe that affect how they behave. And then, you know, on a sort of broader level, what do we do with someone like that who commits a crime if they have, I don't know, for example, a brain tumour? And so while I haven't gone quite down that path, I think that understanding people's motivations and um, looking for justification is 
is a legitimate thing to do, but ultimately I think George and my father knew what they were doing and chose to behave the way that they did. So um, maybe that's something that's open for debate and happy to talk for people to talk about it. Absolutely. Um, so I want to move on to Joy because we've had enough of George um, because she's the, the voice in this book that is constantly there. So if, if Christ is the silent listener, then Joy is the constant narrator. Okay, she's in everything. So her whole life revolves around words and books. Is this because you wanted to give her a voice um, because of the fact that she exists in a physical space where hers is not valid and she's not really allowed to be hurt? Mm, um, Joy is definitely a version of the younger me. And since I've always loved words and books, I, I almost couldn't have written Joy without her experiencing a similar love of books and words. But actually, I think what you said just sort of nailed it, that Joy's narration gives her a voice that she didn't have as a child. And I definitely have the opinion that children need to be given a voice and encouraged to speak up and speak out and exercise their rights to do that. And um, I certainly wasn't and neither were my brothers. And I think that's had a long-term effect on um, all of us. And so I think children need a voice. And then, you know, Joy comes back as an adult. And as an adult, she needs a voice and she needs some agency. And certainly, you know, thinking about what's happening in um, our society at the moment, that we need to listen to adults who have a voice and we need to give them a voice to hear about things that happened to them when they were children or happened to them historically as adults and whether they're survivors of sexual abuse or, I don't know, maybe like lesser crimes perhaps like coercive control, that power that comes with having a voice is so important. So I did want Joy to have a voice and I think it was really important that we saw what happened through her eyes it's interesting that you say that um, that she's based on in part on you. Um, Joy's got a condition called synesthesia, uh, which we talked about at the festival, and it was really interesting. So, yeah. um, for those who don't know, that's where you unconsciously make these associations between certain things. So I have it, um, and I didn't realize I had it until I looked it up. So for <laughs> me, for me, some words are associated with colors. So I see the days of the week in colors, not by any choice. It just happens yeah. randomly. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine sees colors when he hears music. Um, Joy sees images when she hears new words, and they're not necessarily the image that you'll think. So like a book opening might be a, a swarm of butterflies or something like that. Yeah. Is that something that you've experienced? Um, and where did that aspect of her character come from? Um, I wish I could say that I had joy synesthesia, but I don't. Um, but I've always been fascinated by synesthesia and it does happen in or occur in many different forms. So this less common form of synesthesia that joy has fitted in perfectly with her love of words that, that her, that, and that world of words and dictionaries and the images that she experiences when she hears words definitely gave her an escape from the realities of her world and I think also added a, a lighter element to the book 
Um, and I have to say, a lot of people have told me that they absolutely loved that part of the book and they love the descriptions of the images that Joy experiences with words. So that's been really good to hear. And I wish that I had <laughs> Joy's <laughs> anesthesia. And I'm, I'm just going to say that while I don't have it, um, the descriptions for all of the words came very, very easily to me. And a lot of people have said that so they just felt that the descriptions were perfect for the words. And um, I've heard um, and read that some people believe that we all have a form of synesthesia and oh, you'll understand this too, Jen, being musical, that we all kind of associate um, higher notes with happiness and lightness and sunshine and butterflies, things like that, and the very low notes we associate with um, darkness and um, sinister, ominous events that are about to happen. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm about to marry a tuba player. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Yeah, so I, I, I really find it fascinating and, um, yeah, so it was, it was a lovely part of the book to write as well. I had a lot of fun. Um, coming up with the definitions or uh, descriptions. And, um, yeah, as I said, a lot of people have said they really enjoyed it. So, unfortunately, I don't have it, but um, I wish I did. It certainly added a real vibrancy to the book. I mean, there were some dark moments in there, but those descriptions almost gave it a slightly magical sense as well. Oh, yeah, that's um, nice. I like that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, almost like a kind of magical realism, you know, that that she had this whole other world that she could retreat into when she needed to. And that books yeah. brought her so much joy yeah. as well. Yeah. It was really lovely. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about gender in the book. We've already sort of talked about the reason why you um, wrote this from Joy's perspective rather than her brother's. Um, what do you think more generally about gender representation in crime fiction? Do you think that the roles of women, particularly young women, in crime novels have become more varied in recent years? I'm thinking of that comparison with the crawdads mm -hmm. particularly. Yeah, oh, look, I think a lot, a lot of writers are far more aware of how they portray females in all types of fictions, particularly crime, because historically it's often women who are killed and kidnapped and um, don't have any agency or power. But I, I actually think this might be a bit controversial, I don't know. I actually think that we have, there's a bit of a dilemma because if we portray women as victims, it can be seen as a kind of almost lazy stereotyping and perpetuating this depiction of women as people who don't have agency or don't have strengths um, and the ability to look after themselves and get themselves out of difficulty. But if we only portray women as strong and resilient, although I'm, I'm not a big fan of the word resilient for a number of reasons, um, but if we only ever portray women as strong, then I think we're also potentially denying the reality, which is that it is mostly women who are victims and survivors of family abuse. So it's a fine line, I think, but um, definitely people are more aware of um, having maybe a mixture of strong and, and less strong or less empowered 
men and women, which I think is a good thing. Um, and getting back to what um, you said about prod ads, I actually think Delia Owens very deliberately makes Kaya a strong person. She's physically strong and she's intellectually strong. Um, I find it interesting and I'm sure it was also deliberate that Kaya grows up to be physically beautiful as well um, and that she certainly takes control of her life. Um, and while a lot of things are out of her control, she does control what she can. So I'd like to think Joy does that too, even though both characters have, I think, limitations about what they can control and, and what they can work with. Um, and I guess that's true for everyone, really. What we can do um, is limited to some extent and, and we do what we can do under the circumstances that we, we need to cope with. Um, I think also, um, I guess this is one reason why I don't apologise for the more difficult and traumatic scenes in the book because I did want people to almost vicariously experience what it was like to live in a family like that and to understand that, you know, for some people a normal family life isn't what everyone else has experienced. And, and I didn't want it to have um, a happy ending because it, it, not everyone does have a happy ending. And I think that to have wrapped everything up beautifully with a happy ending might have, in fact, almost robbed Joy of some of her agency because she still won despite what happened to her in the end without giving too much away. Yeah, I mean, she, she absolutely takes control of... Mm. of the ending I'm not going to say any more than that because no, I'm just going to say no. something silly yeah. <laughs> um but yeah she her agency really really does get stronger and stronger through the book yeah as she gets older yeah and I think also she suffers as we all do with I'm going to say long-term ramifications of our childhood and whether they're good um or come from a good place or uh, full of good memories we all are uh, you know as we say the product of our upbringing and our experiences and both joy and kaya in um crawdads definitely have to come to terms with what's happened to them as children as we all do why did you choose a rural setting um why not a more why not set it in a more urban landscape why take it back to that that place that you knew so well uh, well because it was easy, because I did know it so well. <laughs> so that's a very easy answer to give. Um, but so it was easy and I did want to depict um, what it was like living on that farm. But I think a rural landscape offers writers with um, a lot more ability to play around with certain elements because I think that in the country people live with extremes so we have extremes of climate and weather and while you might experience the extremes in the city or in a, an urban landscape you don't have to cope with them in quite the same way that yeah. people on the land do um, and there are extremes of distances between houses and farms and ways of living and I think that um, 
allows you to draw on themes of you know isolation and hiding secrets and that idea that you know you don't have to be in space to scream and not be heard you can be on a farm and scream and no one else hears you um and so I think that all of this sort of heightens the the possibilities or expands the possibilities you've got as a um, as a writer and how you can present conflicts and secrets and events that conspire against the characters. So for me it was, um, apart from having grown up in um, country Victoria, it did allow me to explore some of those sorts of ideas and, and I love that idea of being extreme and drawing on extremes when you're writing. So you've been an editor for quite a number of years. Um, has your career path as an editor um, helped you while you were writing this novel? Like, did you find it relatively easy to know what to do or was it still difficult? <laughs> no, it was still difficult, believe me, <laughs> especially when I started weaving different time threads together and trying to make sure everything happened at, at the right place from the reader's perspective. Um I think it's both a good and a bad thing because, uh, you know, when you're writing, you're supposed to not worry about, you know, grammar and punctuation and typos and spelling errors and (laughs) all of that sort of stuff. And I can't do that. I'm totally obsessed, probably not a good thing. I have to have the apostrophe in the right place and I have to have what I at least consider is a well-crafted sentence and it really kind of bugs me if I don't. So I think that... Well, maybe I was going to say I think that slows me down a bit, but maybe it doesn't because then I don't perhaps have to come back and do quite so much editing. But then again, I might go to some lengths to craft a sentence properly and then two days later delete it. So that's not such um, you know not such a time saving method perhaps. Um, but I have to say that. Um, I guess I knew what to expect during the editing process and I really loved that editing process that I went through with Penguin and I know a few other writers who find it or have found it really difficult and frustrating and time-consuming and and there's yet another edit and another one and then proofreading on top of that. But I really enjoyed it and my editor Catherine Hill and I had a lot of fantastic conversations um, about you know things which are potentially boring to other people I understand that about things like tenses and apostrophes and commas and um, and sentence structure and choosing the right word so I, I just absolutely adored all of that, in fact. So it was um, a nice way to end the process of going from, you know, having lots of rough drafts of something that you you don't even know whether it will ever get published or not. Um, For me to have that end process of working with another editor so closely and enjoying it so much was a really positive way to finish the whole process before publication. I think it's not a bad thing either that you you take time over what you're doing because it's so easy these days. If you're writing on a computer particularly, you tend to just race through and don't really think about what you're putting down sometimes. So if I'm writing short stories, I'll do it. um, Just I'll handwrite them first because Mm -hmm. then it forces me when I'm going back through. It's almost like another edit. 
um transcribing yeah. them onto the computer because otherwise you just you look back and you think oh man where did that come from and most of it's crap and you delete it anyway <laughs> that's interesting I don't think I could handwrite a story or a, a novel anymore I'm so used to typing and um I learned to type when I was at high school so I can touch type and I can type pretty quickly I still make lots of errors but um Oh, I would find that really hard. So <laughs> I have a lot of admiration for you there, Jen. That's really something. It's only short stories. I wouldn't ever do it for a novel because it'd be on forever and my hand would just cramp. Yeah, I'd, I'd have trouble reading my handwriting too. But <laughs> I think that some people don't realise that writing and editing are different cognitive processes and that the creating of the story and putting it down into words that work for the reader is quite different to all of that polishing and editing and moving things around and making sure that you've got just the right word in the right place. And while there's obviously some overlap, I think they are quite different. And and as I said, probably it's not a good thing that I try and do both simultaneously, but I do. And um, I, I don't know, I, I think also that having years of editing, maybe it's almost second nature to me and that um, I'm able to move back and forth perhaps between the writing and the editing a bit more easily. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have a bit of a think about it while I'm drafting this second novel now. You've raised a really interesting point. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. Get you thinking on a Friday afternoon. Um <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Lynn, for joining us today. It's been wonderful to talk to you and gain all that insight into your book. For those of you wondering, The Silent Listener is out now, published by Penguin, and it's available to buy online and from all good bookstores. Please consider supporting your local bookshops rather than shopping online. So that's all from us today. Thank you very much for listening. So that's all we have time for today. Please download, like, share, send us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. Bye for now.